0: and we've got another episode of Inside Intercom here for you. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, you've probably heard this saying before. What gets you to your first 50 million is not what's going to get you to 100 million. And we've thought about this a lot during the last few months at Intercom as we've been going through our annual planning. As part of the process, we spent a lot of time reviewing our understanding of who we should be selling to and how we should be selling to these customers. So for today's episode, we're sharing go-to-market insights from past interviews that have really resonated with us. You'll be hearing excerpts from our talks with folks like Close.io co-founder Steli Efti, founder and CEO of Ambient Strategy, April Dunford, Emergence Capital growth partner, Doug Landis, our very own Dez Trainer, Paul Adams, and Emmett Connolly, and last but not least, SalesLoft CMO, Sydney Sloan. Whether you're a startup taking your product to market for the first time this year, or a high growth business looking to scale, I guarantee you'll find some new insights. So if you find this episode interesting, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever you're using to listen to us. Let's jump in. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. A sound go-to-market strategy is founded on a sound understanding of your target audience. So our first excerpt is from our talk with Close.io founder, Stelly Efti. In his interview with Adam Risman, he shares how his team defines their ideal customers and why it's equally important to define your non-ideal customer.
1: What do you remember most about the earliest days of going and selling this product to customers? What worked
2: well for you? What didn't? Can you take us inside some of those conversations? The number one thing that we had learned and knew was that we really needed to understand who our ideal customer was. Mm-hmm. And wh- with anything, I think it's not just important to know what you want to do or who you want to focus on, but to be explicit about who you're not going to serve right. and who's <laughs> not your priority, right? Right. So sometimes it's hard to, to to stay your ground when you're like, we're not going to do enterprise sales. And then a massive company comes and they wave potential imaginary massive amounts of dollars your way. Mm-hmm. It's easy to think you're compromising when you haven't written out explicitly, we are never going to sell to the enterprise. Right. You right? haven't so, really
1: defined your, your lane and put the bumpers up, that kind of thing.
2: Yes. and And so for us, before we launched Close, we did a few things that were incredibly helpful in the early days. We said, this is going to be our ideal customer who we're going to focus on. But we also said, here are the type of customers that if they come our way, we're going to turn away. right? We're going to say no to. We, so we didn't just have an ideal customer profile. We had a non-ideal customer profile as well. Right? We explicitly put you know uh, uh, put, put it out there throughout the entire team. If this type of customer comes, we'll turn them away. We'll say no. Same thing with a product. We had like a product roadmap and we had an anti-product roadmap. We're like, here are the things we're not going to build. No matter how much people are going to ask us for this, unless our base hypothesis on who we are trying to serve and how we're trying to serve, unless we completely change the fundamental of how we're trying to build the business, we're not going to build these things. And I think that helped us a tremendous amount in the early days because as we got a little bit of publicity and got some PR and people started spreading the word, you in the early days especially, you'll get all kinds of requests, all kinds of attention, all kinds of potential customers coming your way, and it's very hard to focus and to prioritize. And when you're a small team, your time is everything, mm-hmm. right? And your speed is everything. So if you go super broad with a tiny team, you're going to waste a ton of time, right? And this is something that we definitely – saw with a lot of our startup clients and and a mistake we didn't do with Close, to which I'm very grateful for. So truly understanding who we wanted to go after and who we wanted to serve and who we didn't and knowing how we wanted to deliver value and what were the type of features and things we wouldn't do, even if they seemed popular. I think that helped us to be super laser focused.
1: Yeah, I really liked what you were saying about how it helped your team formulate the idea of who was really ready to get value from this product and who might look really good on paper, but the value just wouldn't be there for them. And long term, the relationship wouldn't work. Speaking directly to that ideal customer profile, I'm really interested in that. What types of inputs did you have in terms of creating that both in the here's who we want to attract and here's who isn't a great fit for us, even if they are the big glowing enterprise or unicorn company?
2: Yeah, so we knew from the get go that, you know, we asked ourselves, Who is a type of customer that we truly understand and we understand better than anybody else in the marketplace? And who is a customer that we truly care about, right? And for us, it was clear that startups and small and medium-sized businesses were the type of businesses, A, we understood really well because we had run these types of, like a lot of people in the company were entrepreneurial and had run a business before. I had run multiple startups and SMBs before. So it was just an audience that we intimately understood, and we understood better than the other types of potential customers, and we cared about more, honestly, about them than than anybody else. We, we were just not excited about making, you know, a, a massive conglomerate a little bit more efficient. Like it just was not exciting to us, even if it meant millions of dollars. So that was one thing. The other thing we knew was that we were like, we believed that sales. At its core was really result-driven communication, and if this was true, we really wanted to build communication software for salespeople. So it was by then, by definition, we needed to focus on mainly on salespeople that would do inside sales, that would c- communicate a lot, you know, virtually with our customers versus the field salespeople, which is a part of sales that was in decline, anyways, o- over the years, still an important part, but in decline for sure. Mm-hmm. And something, you know, b- being an amazing tablet field sales CRM and sales platform and being an amazing inside sales kind of call, email, communication-based platform, they are not the same. And to be great at one thing, you're going to have to be making compromises in the other. So we knew from the get-go we wanted to only sell to sales teams that did inside sales and not field sales. That was just not our thing. We knew we wanted to focus on startups and SMBs and not on the enterprise and also not as much on hobby users or individual professionals, uh, kind of single users, although we have some of these customers that was not our primary kind of ideal customer. And if even that, there were a few more things, but even this actually like cut out a lot of people, right? When you say we don't want to focus on professionals and single users, we don't want to focus on massive kind of organizations of thousands of employees or Fortune 500 companies. And then out of the ones that are, that are still standing, kind of the small and medium-sized companies out there, we really want to focus on the ones that do mainly inside sales and not field sales. And on top of it for us, we said we're going to focus on the U.S. And that really just meant having all our content and all our communication, everything we did in U.S., dollar, and in English. Mm-hmm. But from day one, we have customers all around the world. We just didn't focus on that. Right. right? We, we didn't do any extra work to make it better or easier for these types of international customers to purchase us. So we said, we're going we're gonna to have to keep things very, very simple and narrow them down in a fairly focused way for a small team like ours to be able to do a good job and, and for us to be able to, to grow.
0: How do you get the attention of your ideal customers? You need more than branding or messaging. You need a positioning strategy. And in a crowded marketplace, positioning is not a one-and-done deal. It is an ongoing exercise. April Dunford... Founder and CEO of Ambient Strategy spoke with our editor Jeffrey Keating about the symptoms of weak positioning at the SaaS conference in Dublin recently. Let's listen in.
3: Let's take a hypothetical example. Let's say you're launching a brand new product tomorrow. Like, what are the first steps you're you're taking to understand how to position it?
4: Right. So most companies start with an idea to make an existing thing better so they'll say i'm going to build a better email system or i'm going to you know build a better crm or a faster database and they iterate on the product they get it out in the customers hands Um, the customers say i love these features i hate these features so after they go through this period of kind of monkeying around with the product they have something that customers love and they start selling it often they never revisit that positioning so they just say you know we 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 started out to build a database this thing is obviously a database or it's obviously a crm but quite often if you were a customer coming at that thing having no prior experience with it But you might look at it and say, well, no, that's not CRM, that's chat, or no, that's not email, that's team collaboration. And so what startups need to do in particular is to be able to sort of back up and say, if I put my customer hat on, what is the best context I could weave around this product so that it makes sense to people when they first encounter it cold?
3: And as, well, as a consultant at the moment, I mean, is there particular, you know, mistakes or challenges that people are coming to you with when it comes to positioning?
4: Yeah. So most of the time, weak positioning manifests itself in a bunch of ways. So the most common symptom of weak positioning is people just don't understand what we do or you get compared to competitors that the company says, these are not our competitors at all. And yet customers keep thinking we're they just are. like them. Mm-hmm. So you'll see this kind of weakness in the funnel in different ways. So often it'll be difficult to get a lead into the funnel because people don't understand what it is. And then sometimes what you'll get is a lot of essentially friction in the mid funnel where you can see customers wrestling with, is this really what I need? Is this really what gonna solve my problem? Uh, and then you'll get a lot of churn on the back end where they think you do one thing and then when they actually get their hands on it and use it, they're like, whoops, no, this is something else. <laughs> and they'll turn out on you. So you tend to see those symptoms quite a bit.
3: When, you know, features and, you know, products can be replicated so easily, you know, positioning becomes so much more important. So. Is there any sort of advice you'd give them to sort of stand out in this particularly crowded marketplace?
4: Yeah, I think the best thing that B2B SaaS vendors can do is stay really focused on their differentiators because... There are things about your solution that your customers, your best customers, really, really love about you, and the rest of it kind of doesn't matter. And I know we want to talk about all the things, (laughs) but the best thing to do is to just hone in on this is our secret sauce. This is the thing we do better than anybody else. If you don't care about this stuff, we're not the solution for you. And most vendors, where they get in trouble, B2B SaaS vendors, is when they start trying to tell me about every single little thing they do. And some of it's their secret sauce, and some of it's just meh. It's just like everybody else's thing. But they're trying to sell me too much stuff. And what happens is that you end up looking like everyone else. And so I think it's important for SaaS companies, in particular B2B SaaS, to lead with your best stuff and get your best stuff out front, your secret sauce stuff out front. And then you got lots of time later to tell you, you know, do the checkbox of the Mind million other features you've got. We'll worry about that later. But if people understand your core value and your core differentiators, then you'll stand out on your own from all these other folks that are like, hey, we're everything for everybody. We just heard
0: April talk about the importance of telling people about your product differentiators, your secret sauce. So how do you go about telling that narrative? Doug Landis, Grove partner at Emergence Capital, dissects why most customer stories don't work and the key ingredients marketing and sales teams should use instead in their sales narrative.
5: So many people write their customer stories of like, here's the problem. You know, here's their challenge. Here's how we solved it. Here's their ROI. Yeah. That doesn't mean shit. A salesperson, all you know, all they're going to do is again state a bunch of facts, right? Of bullets. Yeah. The reality is, I want to know kind of, I want to know the glue. I want to know who that person was. I want to know what they were really struggling with. I want to know how their world could have been different if they had just opened their eyes or thought about it or approached it differently. So, I, I, a couple of things I did. I went and met with everybody in customer success to try and extrapolate the best stories possible. And then I took those and I, I tried to reorient those and give those back to marketing and say, we need to incorporate these. If you're the head of security and you're building your security deck for our reps to use, we need to reorient that and make sure that we're using the voice of our customers in these little tiny stories into that, right? Because the reality is, is our job is to help our customers identify problems that they haven't quite considered. And we're going to pull those problems out of our existing customers. And so the whole goal was how do we pull those out of our customers and then share those internally, both with marketing and with the sales team, so that it reorients our conversation. And then lastly, probably most importantly, was just rewriting our whole first call deck. I guarantee you if you look at everyone's, and might even yours, uh, maybe not. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) uh, But if you look at it, probably the first slide is like, okay, here's who we are. And then the second slide is, okay, here are all our customers. And then the third slide is, you know, here's the problem that we're trying to solve, right? And it's like there's – And you've probably
1: already lost who you're presenting to by the time you get through those three slides. Because Uh, the the first three, four slides
5: (laughs) is all about you, right? The customers want to know about them. And the only way that they can compare themselves is if you give them insight into other people just like them. Right, So first slide should be like, hey, listen, this is what we've learned from our customers who we feel like are pretty similar to you. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is while you may think that this is your fundamental problem, the reality is you might – it's a very important word – you might have problem two, three, four, and five. And if you don't have those problems now, it's quite possible you're going to have those down the road. And so – if you think that's possible, then let's dig into what those problems could fundamentally mean to you and how to think about solving those.
1: You mentioned finding new ways to sort of share these internally, particularly with marketing. And I'm, I'm curious how that went and how you were able to develop con- some consistency there because marketing typically is for sort of speaking to the masses, right? Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah, totally. So one, you have to create a template, if you will, for marketing that reorients the way in which they build decks, right? Because again, especially product marketing, and this is no offense to anybody in marketing, but product marketing, you're like, your job is to translate from the product managers what the product is all about and the value that it delivers and the ROI that, you know, you can hopefully deliver by yep. using this product. But what you, what's missing in all of that is the customers, right? So at the end of the day, you're solving, your product is solving a particular problem, but how, do, how have we validated that? And is your product actually solving more than just one problem? Most likely it is, but do we talk about that? Yeah. Right. Because our goal is, again, to get our customers to look at us and go, huh, I hadn't quite considered that. And the moment you get that, I'm going to I'm going to use a a phrase that Chris Voss, who's one of the best negotiators, former CIA negotiator for 25 years. He did hostage negotiation. Um, He wrote a book. uh, I can't remember what it's called, but just look him up. Chris Voss. But one of the things he gets you to think about in the world of negotiation is not to get somebody to say yes, but to get them to say that's right. Because the moment they say that, you now have proof that you've built enough empathy and you've demonstrated your level of understanding of them. And the moment that happens, now you've got them.
1: So, so to get to that point, what, are, what do you see as the cornerstones of a really strong, compelling story? And I don't just mean like beginning, middle, and end, but like what elements have to be there to get the person who's receiving this to that point?
5: Contrast. Contrast. Contrast is one of the most powerful vehicles for storytelling, right? It is where are you today? Where could you be tomorrow? It's like, what do you have versus what could you have? Old way, new way. Old way, new way. It's all about contrast. Mm -hmm. And then, and it's not just contrast by like me telling you about contrast, but it's me using examples, right? Because me telling you is not necessarily all that believable. If I got it right, then maybe it's a little bit more believable. (laughs) But in many cases, we're kind of guessing because we don't know exactly what's going on with our customers. We're kind of guessing. Or the context that they're in. Right, right. Timing, relevance, everything else, right? And so contrast is a really, really important vehicle. Um, Analogies, another really important vehicle. We speak our own speak, right? We drink our own champagne, eat our own dog food, whatever it is. Our customers don't get it. So, using analogies and metaphors is a really interesting way to actually help make complex things actually sound simple. Um, is that then, sort of like the you're the Airbnb for X
1: or the Uber for Y yeah, kind of thing, yeah, or yeah, deeper, yeah, than uh, deeper than that? Deeper than that.
5: I mean, that's super surface level. But you know, analogies, and of course, now I can't think of a <laughs> single one off the cuff. But, but, but in the context of what it is you're t- trying to talk about, right? So, you know, if you think about. Let's use Box as an example. Okay. And you think like Box for many people is just like, you know, sync and share, file storage, right? It's like, yeah, okay, that's that's true. There There is some truth to that. But it's so much more. Right. So how do you get somebody to understand that it's more when their own point of view is just like, no, it's just storage. And storage is cheap. So why the yeah. hell am I going to pay $35, <laughs> right? So you got to reorient their thinking. And, and an analogy is a really, really good way. Of course, now I can't think of one right now. I will do so by the time we end. But – but that's a really interesting way to get them to go, oh, okay, there's there's more. Um, the other thing, of course, in, in storytelling is you have to have some sort of structure. Um, and, you know, we all think of beginning, middle, and end. But at the end of the day, it's just people don't want to know that you're rambling. Like, yeah. when is this going to end? Where are we going with this, right? You ever heard somebody tell a story like you're hanging at a bar or whatever and someone's telling a story and you're like, Okay, and hanging out at a bar,
1: or sometimes hanging out in here, or yeah, or,
5: yeah, at the office, and you're like, uh, okay, um, where are we going with this? When is this gonna be over? I, if there's structure to the story, then it's easier to understand where we are, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, some sort of emotion, you got to have that emotion, which is why we're using more adverbs, right? We're using descriptive language to talk about what's really going on versus facts and statements. Mm-hmm. By the way, the other thing that's really important is facts, the number one thing is when you state a fact, the first thing that we do by default as human beings is we want to argue that against that fact. We don't believe it. You tell me a fact, I'm like, all right, where's your proof? Like, yeah. I don't, like What's the source? <laughs> especially if you're in sales. What's the sample size? Yep. Yeah, totally. If you're in sales, you automatically, I'm already defensive, and then you throw out a fact. I'm like, well, how, how do I know that's true? right so it's be be really mindful about just using more emotion versus mm-hmm. facts facts you can use to back up the story that you just told it's a great little one two punch
0: ideal customer profiles check positioning strategy check a winning sales narrative check so what else do you need well one thing we've learned from this past year is the importance of team alignment The work involved to get teams aligned on who you're selling to and how you're selling is not something that you can take for granted. So let's take a look at what it takes to build this alignment in the next couple excerpts. First, our co-founder, Des trainer, talks with our VP of product, Paul Adams, and Director of Product Design, Emmett Connolly, on how our product team built a process with sales to listen to the voice of our unmet customers the ones who ultimately couldn't adopt our product although on paper they were a great fit let's take a listen
3: paul one area where i think uh, i experienced a change in in how our product and engineering teams work is in our relationship with go to market teams specifically say uh, how we deal with like some of our our larger customers or larger prospects like one thing that occurred to me very early on when i moved back to r and d or to product and engineering land was um, how we have a lot of inputs to our roadmap, but one customer who it's fundamentally impossible to listen to unless you're like, you know, talk to other folks is the voice of the customer who couldn't adopt your product. Mm. As in they Mm -hmm. they ultimately couldn't agree to buy it for whatever reason and that's because of a shortcoming. Everything else kind of has its way onto the roadmap with the exception of this, right? And that kind of, the penny really only dropped for me, it sounds naive, but like uh, after multiple conversations with folks in sales, you kind of took point on that in a lot of ways. Um, talk us through what we changed there. Yeah, it's
6: interesting to kinda of track the journey over the years because you know, Intercom's changed a lot and there's lots of people listening to this who have companies of all different types and sizes. And so some are small and some like when we were smaller, like our self-serve channel was mm-hmm. like so kind of dominant in at least in how we thought. Yeah. You know, people just go to our website, you know, they find out about us, word of mouth, whatever, Twitter. Talk to people that they know in the industry, they go to our website and sign up themselves and they're up and running. And as we get bigger and bigger and bigger, and as people get to know Intercom, we got bigger companies coming on, knocking on our door with more complex requirements. Mm-hmm. And often they need to talk to someone because, mm-hmm. you know, no market, like as good as any marketing site might be, it's so just yeah. not going to answer every single question yeah, people yeah. have. So I kind of found, I think, that A, we started to have more and more companies who just wanted to talk, mm-hmm. hey, t- you know, talk to us about, about Intercom. So then our sales team kind of grew out of that, and it's been really successful, and like as you said, there was definitely a lag between the sales team growing inside Intercom and us in product engineering actually realizing that we needed to listen Mm -hmm. way better. You know, we'd always like Mm -hmm. corridor chats and, you know, very open, Uh, it wasn't like it was a deliberate thing, it was just more that um, we were lagging, yes we were lagging. And the lesson, the hard lesson I learned was like, oh shit, like there's a whole critical input here that we're just missing. And so we changed that. And you know, what we didn't do very explicitly was do whatever the prospective customers were asking us for. Mm-hmm. That's obviously um, not a good path, mm-hmm. a path to ruin over some period of time where you just start building like one-off features and changes yeah. that just make your product a big mess. So what we did is, like, like we've always done, like I said earlier, like operations and process, we, you know, kind of sat down with, sale, with the sales team over the course of like weeks and months and together, very collaboratively, built a process and we iterated it over time, over the yeah. year, so that we could gather all the inputs yeah. that they were hearing, summarize them, synthesize them, pull out the yeah. patterns. One big change was that customers typically ask for features, yeah. very specific features. And we kind of worked the sales team so that when the sales team were talking to customers, they got the customers to think in terms of the problems that they had. Which yeah. is kind of like a classic yeah. design thing. Like if you know if you're in the world of design, it's very common. Mm-hmm way to think, that you ensure you understand people's problems, and then you figure out the best solution. They're often not the best people to mm-hmm. figure out the best solution. But, you know, if you live in the sales world, that's not common, really. Yeah. And so it was awesome. We, we, we built this process together. It's called Problems to be Solved, mm-hmm. which is very self-explanatory. Borrowing from the Jobs to do, Done style. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's got an acronym, too. Yeah. PTS, PTBS. Yeah. Uh, so Problems to be Solved, and that's literally what it is. It's a list of prioritized problems to be solved. And uh, it's taken from like hundreds and hundreds of, you know, weekly and monthly sales conversations. And then, and then like you said, it's one, and it's one input. Mm-hmm. So now we have like a new input yeah. all around, you know, can we make Intercom better based on the things that prospective customers yeah. are looking
3: for? And obviously they have to be like traded off against the current customers, the like the things we have, the ideas we want right. to build, all the new shit we hope to do in any given year. yeah. But yeah, it, it's been quite a... a force of maturing, I'd say, for us to, to bring in the sort of voice of the unmet customer. Or. Yeah, very much so, yeah. It's just one of those things that's a no-brainer in retrospect as well. You know, it's like yeah. some something of a truism among among designer product people to, like, know your user. Yeah. Nobody talks about knowing your prospective user, or the right. person who isn't a user, because yeah. you have already failed them, right? Yeah, so it's like, yeah I think that's exactly it. it's Especially when it relates to, like, blockers, like, it's not like, It's not, these aren't people saying, I'd use you if only you'd also add five more features so that I could do like face ID tracking. And, you know, it's always like, I want to use you exactly the way you intend to be used, but I just need this extra piece of like permissions or security or settings or whatever to actually, to unblock me and my team from adopting. It's like, it's not, these aren't like typically like directional. I need your product to change its behavior. It's Mm -hmm. much more like I just... I need you to unlock this extra piece so that I can, you know, adopt a tool that meets my standards and my criteria. Totally. I think then our role in interpreting that is like, is this something that makes sense for the product holistically or was on our roadmap and we can pull forward rather than just like responding to those sales blockers. Absolutely.
0: An other crucial area for alignment is across sales support and marketing. CMO of sales loft Sydney Sloan, shares how she's been able to build partnership across all these critical functions, both in terms of how they go to market together and in terms of performance measurement and attribution. Here's an excerpt of her interview with Alexandra Shapiro.
7: What about your partnership experience with sales? I'm sure sales and support are also some of the teams that are thinking about the same questions. And also thinking about how do they create and need to collaborate with marketing to create those moments of delighting customers. Can you
8: talk a little bit about how you work with the support and uh, sales teams at Salesloft? Sure. Salesloft has been different than any company I've ever worked at before. I have to say, and that's one of the things that drew me there: the commitment of the company to put customers first. And um, one of our other cultural values is team over self, and we we truly are an account based strategy for the company. There is no marketing needs to deliver this and sales delivers that. It's who are our target accounts? How are we engaging them? What can marketing do? What can sales do? And it's a true outbound orientation. I absolutely love it. (laughs) It it is a true partnership, and our CRO and and myself, Sean Murray you know, we talk about the factors that categorize or quantify who our target accounts are. So marketing owns target accounts and selection of the list. And then we work with sales to prioritize those lists and define the segmentations that we want to go after and the, the methodologies for going after them. And then, of course, we tier the accounts and, you know, we put invest more resources in the top tiers than, than the at- scale activities for the lower tier. and And so that that partnership is in place. We also have a great partnership with the sales enablement team as they look to gather feedback, build messages, train and then we use insights from our product as to what messages are resonating with the customers. So that's that's been quite different than previous experiences where it was a little bit more on the traditional side of marketing where my leads and then marketing would say why don't you follow up on my lead sales. <laughs> you have definitely heard that story before. So it's it's a true partnership on the support side at Salesloft and at previous companies. So I like the direction it's going into. I've only been at Salesloft for 4 months, so I'm still and and a lot of the leaders are relatively new. What I love on the support side that we're talking about right now is that we identify best practices and benchmarks. And there's two facets to that. One is that We have a roadmap and we have a structure that we can recommend to customers that they need to follow and we can help them evaluate where they are from where we see best practices can be. And so it's a great place to start where customers can see that, okay, this is, these are all the things I need to do. I'm strong here. I'm weak here. And we can work together with them on getting them to the levels that they need to, to succeed. Those kinds of benchmarks and frameworks, I think, are a great partnership between marketing and the customer success team to leverage in marketing and to help with the customer acquisition. I, you know, Data and, and benchmarks is something that customers really like to see. Where do I fit in? And then they can use that to do the implementation. So I see that partnership very strong. The other part to the customer success organization at SalesLoft is that they're also our education team. And so going back to the smart, happy customers buy more and wanting to educate customers or non-customers, really. I mean, we want to be the company that sales leaders come to to get insights and advice on how to modernize their sales organization. So the more that we can partner with the education team on bringing those lessons to not only our customers, but non-customers, I think will help us grow our our awareness and our reach of SalesLoft. loft.
7: I love it. Um, So many things that you said resonate with me. I'm like, I have a happy smile (laughs) on my face. Yeah, (laughs) totally (laughs) smiling. Um, And I think I've been in intercom for six months. But one of the big reasons why I chose this job because I was so impressed with our sales leader, LB, who is also our support leader. So support and sales both report to her and she's a fantastic partner to marketing. And then that's part of the reason why I'm smiling. But the second part why I was smiling is because we also have a product education team and uh, they actually report into marketing. And what I like about what's incredible to have this team is they truly think about how can we educate our customers and how can they take full advantage of the full breadth of our solution and think about those key moments of how we can communicate what we do all the things that we've built on our platform and then encourage them to maximize the values they derive from our product. So that's... We're in and, violent agreement. <laughs> and I know. And, I, you know, prior to this, never had this kind of functional marketing feel very. Yeah, very and I think it's very smart for Intercom to invest in this and build this team. So how do you measure performance? Like, what is the key metrics on your dashboard? You said that marketing is looking at the
8: entire customer lifecycle. But well, what are the things that you track as a CMO? So on the, on the high level of the dashboard, there's a couple things. So we track pipeline and impact to closed one. And I think that's so important for marketing to do to show the impact on the business. So we want to see how much pipeline are we jointly developing on our target accounts? How much influence on those target accounts is marketing driving? And then um, we also look at inbound as a separate function, so non-target inbound. So we just are still tracking, even though it's not in our target account, how much are we still just naturally drawing in? And that's a separate segment, but we're not investing in that. That's just coming to us. So that's the top level. It could be coming from content or as a way. It could be coming from content, anybody, but that's outside of our target account list. So that's um, non-target accounts. And just seeing how those trend over time, as well as looking at the closed ratios and the conversions between the different stages at a cohort level. So where can we look into our, our funnel and the performance of the funnel to continue to make improvements? The other thing that I always will have to look at is the opposite side of the coin. Am I investing wisely those dollars that the company is entrusting in marketing so we look at our return on investment and what i've learned over time is not to make it overly scientific so generalized feedback is is sufficient in that we want to understand you know how much does it take to book a meeting how much investment do we need on enterprise accounts large enterprises versus our commercial accounts that deliver a different return on our investment. So we'll look at the differences between that. I look at the differences between channels, which channels are performing. And I know they're going to be different, and that's okay. It's setting expectations of what the return should be through those different channels, because we know that you're going to have to have a mix. So a field event might cost more, but I know that what the return on that's going to be. So look at channel mix and performance and then our overall return on spend where, you know, for every dollar, how much are we returning to the business? And then we looked at blended CAC. So sorry, the head of sales and I also keep our eye on, on our CAC for sales and marketing combined. Yeah, I think it's very smart to look at blended CAC, right, especially in the segment
7: where you're going after the named account segments because it's really a combination of sales and marketing efforts getting you there. We share many of the same metrics, but we also have one of the things that we try to do is to build alignment at the most senior level on the overarching metrics. So I always think that sales and marketing share the revenue number, and that means we may control different types of inputs that go into the number. So we may be driving some of the leads and conversion rates, but it's really sales that also helping with conversion rates, especially for larger customers in ARPA. So it's a combination of both mm. teams that is driving the output metric, but we share the same output metric.
8: Yeah, one thing that I could just never get comfortable with is when the marketing team would be like, yay, look at all the MQLs we got, and the sales teams are struggling to make the number. And it just always felt wrong to me and and MQLs can be n- manipulated, you know, yes. so we can open them up and close close them down. But um, so I really do think it's more important to look at the pipeline and how you're contributing to pipeline and then figuring out together how to make sure that you're converting the, as much pipeline as possible. So doing mid-stage metrics and mid-funnel marketing activities to continue to improve across all the stages is important. And that's the other kind of key lesson. And if there's other marketers that are out there where they're still working with sales teams that say, oh, marketing, don't touch my deal now that I'm working it. That's wrong. There's so much that marketing do to continue to keep the accounts warm, to bring net new contacts into the equation. So hopefully sales teams are realizing that marketing can add value across all stages and beyond. So there you have it. Insights from experienced leaders
0: from a wide range of companies on taking your product to market this coming year. It starts with a renewed understanding of who you're selling to, what your customers need, and how to break through the noise in a crowded marketplace. And leaders need to invest in alignment to make sure this knowledge gets from the top of the organization all the way down to individual team members across all teams. For more resources on growing your business, check out our latest books and guides at intercom.com slash books. Again, that's intercom.com forward slash books. Until next time. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom Podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.